This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Season 5 of Electric Bookaloo, you may be interested to know, we'll have a couple running themes. The first is that I've been digging deep into historical precedents for trial by combat. It seems that most examples of trial by battle were used for civil disputes. But of course, Tyrion gets into trouble here for really what we would consider a crime against the state or a crime against the king, and historical precedents for what we consider a criminal case are not so easy to come by. So I've been doing a lot of reading, I've been talking to experts on this, and my interview with Ian McGinnis was my first attempt at trying to flesh out historical examples. Ian is senior lecturer at the Center for History at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, The second running theme this season will be knights and chivalry, and we'll talk a little bit about that with my second guest, and that is Curtis Runstedler. Curtis is currently lecturing in Germany at the University of Tübingen, so we're kind of all over Europe this week. Curtis and I will be covering Catelyn's seventh POV chapter. This is the famous trial by combat between Sir Vardis Egan and Bronn the Freerider. But before we get to that, here is my short interview with Ian McGinnis. Yeah, all right. So Ian McGinnis, and then, of course, the title of the book? Uh, is uh, Scotland's Second War of Independence, 1332 to 1357. Oh, damn. That's just the classic history title right there. <laughs> you keep it simple. You even have the dates. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done, sir. <laughs> Uh, my first monograph, uh, check this out. This is how stupid I was. I put the word historiographical Ooh. in the title. <laughs> <laughs> that way did July's. Historiographical. What was I thinking? Historiographical. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, that was, you know, the, the, the blunders of young men, I suppose. <laughs> Yes, I, I was. I did have a, a longer title to start with, but my editor uh, kind of bashed me over the head several times and, and, and told me <laughs> told me to make it simpler. Uh, what What do you think about the Harry Potter and the Second War of Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> that That would be fantastic. I, I um, do that with my article titles instead, and try, try to try to come up with something suitably uh, random that people will come yeah. up with and insert. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for you, and it's sort of a... It's, it's, I'm springing this on you. I didn't give you any notice on this question, Ian. Are you game Are you game for, oh, for yeah, taking uh, an uh, impromptu wh- wh- question? Whether I can answer or not, I can't promise, but mm-hmm. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. All right, so Tyrion has uh, chosen trial by combat. Mm. And... This seems an invention for Martin's in Martin's world, and it's got this theological component. Like the gods will decide whether you're innocent, like, you know, Ooh. and there are the rules about whether or not you can choose a champion or not, or whatever. So this is a very sort of world of ice and fire specific. But are there any historical inspirations that might have given Martin this particular idea? I mean, I suppose that there is that's quite a current question due to the the film that's just just coming out uh, or just out. Ridley Scott's new film, the 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 last the last duel, the last um, duel. Yes, of course, yeah. of course. You know, duels. Uh, you know, a lot of famous duels in history, right? Yeah, yeah. But that um, would just be like you and me have a problem, and we go out in the field and settle it. There's no theological or justice component, is there? Well, I, no, I think it still is. I mean, th- th- there is. It's that ultimate 
decision that, that, that as you said, it's it's God's judgment. It, it comes down to the to the two individuals fighting it out, uh, and it ultimately it's God's judgment. I mean, it's the mm. same logic that's used about medieval battles. Uh, you know, both sides go into a medieval battle thinking that they have right on their side, but it's ultimately it's God's judgment as to who wins and who loses, and mm. that's that's how such things are written about. So, I mean, it, there is a there is a legalistic component to to the kind of trial by battle idea, um, and I think all all men accused of a crime have, uh, depending on place and time, um, but, but often have recourse to, to various different ways to prove their innocence uh, within. Uh, legal structures and one of those is you know the, the recourse to trial by battle and it, it does happen uh i think in in various cases where where yes it's ultimately the strength of your hand that proves your innocence uh, mm. as opposed to anything else so yeah so the, you're saying that there are historical precedents for someone who has been accused of a crime who instead of you know deciding to use their words to defend themselves decide to use their hands and their their metal to defend themselves yeah i think it's i think it's often in cases where perhaps because one of the alternatives is is that you have you know you you bring out a a coterie of of individuals who will back you up who will Mm -hmm. who will effectively provide evidence to say that yes or or no you didn't do this Mm -hmm. Uh, and and perhaps in in circumstances where that isn't possible um then then this is an alternative there is a kind of oft-quoted case, and I can't remember the exact details of it, uh, of a, a, a trial by combat, though, where where the, the victor, in fact, the man who he manages to slay the the opponent, um, but the opponent falls on him uh, and kind of pins him to the ground, and he ends up he ends up pinned by the the dead body of the of the man he's run through, uh, and and because he can't get up. Uh, he's effectively then declared the loser, um, and so and so loses the case. Um, I think I once saw that with the Macho Man Randy Savage and Andre <laughs> the Giant. Was that the case you were thinking of? No, just... not, not the specific one. No, I think oh, this was right. a medieval example. But um... oh, 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 medi- all right, all right. <laughs> C- continue. Sorry. No, no, I, I, but I think I know there are a couple of you know from my own research there are a couple of Scottish examples. Just a quick insert here. After this conversation, Ian emailed me and wrote this. 28 October 1354, William de Heron was given permission to fight a duel in Scotland. The duel was supposed to take place in front of William de Buhon against John Waylace and William Prudhomme because they were accused of having stolen Heron's horses, for which he demanded justice through combat. So thanks to Ian, we have a specific example and now back to my conversation with Ian McGinnis. I think ultimately, kind of recourse to trial by combat is is an option, but isn't necessarily always one that's that's sought. Uh, I think uh, I suppose the only the only comparison I could make is, is with examples in, in in battles, and and again you have those cases where you have individual challenges offered before a battle starts. And you even have examples uh, in the Hundred Years' War where, where someone will, will you know, uh, uh, King of England will suggest that, well, we don't, we don't need to have this battle and have thousands of men die. Right, we can sort yeah, this yeah. out amongst ourselves. And that, that's played up in um, uh, The King, that, that, that Netflix film that was, that was done a couple, a couple of years ago with, with uh, Timothy Chalamet. And that idea of in, instead of fighting uh, the Battle of uh, Ashenko, um that the, the, the kings could sort out themselves beforehand. But you, you do have challenges offered and you do have these one-on-one combats um, mm-hmm. before before the full scale thing starts. And again, I think it's a, I think it's an expansion of the same idea uh, of that that individual prowess. And obviously the, the, there's links here to the tournament uh, and to, to more frivolous pastimes uh, as as well as you know entertainment uh, and and skills training, but there is that there is that legalistic uh, aspect of it as well. Mm, I just don't. I'm not necessarily sure if it's as necessarily as common as all that, but but it is a it is a recourse. And equally, you know, throughout the series, we see high-born knights, uh, men of good family, behaving abysmally. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I think Martin has a very a very negative idea of of chivalry as a concept and of and of the knighthood as a class, and I think someone like Braun is almost like the kind of 
he's not the corrective to it, but but Braun has his own code, um, arguably that he he fights by, and it's it's more simplistic. It's not tied up in quasi religious ideas and structures, but but he sticks to it nonetheless, by and large, um, and I think that works for him. Yeah, Vardis Egan is very much sort of this, sort of the epitome of the knight, not just in in terms of being a warrior, a professional warrior, but also by way of courtesy and you know the the whole religious ritual aspect of it. Whereas Braun is portrayed as a killer, you know, he's a murdering, <laughs> he's a murdering bastard. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about that distinction. Yeah. It's interesting in the TV version in the in the in the trial by combat, you get that notion the way it's depicted that, that there's there's those suggestions of oh you know he's he's not he's not fighting properly he's not fighting like a knight uh, and that's how Braun ends up winning but Braun is fighting in a way that he knows ultimately will prove well he, he hopes will ultimately be successful he fights in a way that's clever that's sensible he's not burdened by any notions of of respectability about how he should fight and 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 arguably then he's more successful because of it and then we get into that whole thing of you know what is a warrior and what isn't what is a knight and and what isn't and Mm. and where exactly does braun sit within that that warrior society of westeros Mm -hmm. clearly knights are killers and if you were to talk to someone like the hound he would say yeah of course that's it that's all that that's all they really are they're killers but of course you know, the rules of the day would suggest otherwise. Like, knights are much more than that. In fact, this is something of a noble calling. So, yeah, so what is sort of the difference between someone like Braun and someone like Vardis Egan? I think Egan probably represents the, the kind of knightly, chivalric ideal. He represents the vision of the warrior that you know Sansa reads about in her romances that she's obsessed by and and and, and those fantastical stories about knights defending their ladies and then that's exactly what what Varys Egan is called upon to do and and does do uh, although obviously with the the, the likelihood of, of of marrying Lysa at some point down the line and and I think it's the ideal of knighthood that we see in in medieval romance as well as in the romances that are depicted in the show and in in, in the novels but then you have warriors like uh brawn who, who are, are rather different and that what you said about the, the comparison with with the hound is quite a, a useful one i think i think someone like the hound is kind of like the voice of reality the voice of practicality he's far more black and white about recognizing how knights behave and as you say knights are killers as well uh, it is how they go about it and, and how they portray themselves that's perhaps the mm. distinction, as well as where they come from. Uh, but I think mm. there's far less between someone like Clegane and uh, and Sandra Clegane and, and, and Braun than there is between between the Hound and mm. and, and Vase of the other knights you see. Okay, well that's that, that's very helpful. That's, I, I'm glad I'm glad that you were able to do that on the fly because I was thinking like you know what I really need to address that because it didn't get addressed before. Tyrion ends up in this position again, doesn't he? Where um, he, he he's supposed to fight the mountain, and it's the the Prince of Dorne who fights for him instead. And right, um, yeah. And and that one doesn't work out for him uh, that time. So that uh, one doesn't work out for anyone, really. Well, no, no, <laughs> not very true. It doesn't work out for the mountain either. <laughs> Doctor McGinnis will be back in a couple of weeks to help me cover the next Tyrion chapter, and now to cover. Catelyn's eighth POV chapter with me. Here's Dr. Curtis Runstetler. Curtis Runstetler, tell me everything I need to know about medieval robots. Medieval robots, uh, where, where to begin? So <laughs> I look at uh, kind of depictions. I, robot is more of a 20th century word, so mm-hmm, I use kind sure. of robots and automata interchangeably too. Um, yeah. But I look at examples such as uh, talking brazen heads, and I'm also looking at uh, alchemical homunculus too, mm-hmm. basically a, like a test tube baby in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Yeah. So for someone who's never connected it with this literature at all before, so mm-hmm. an automaton was this thing that was crafted out of metal to make it look like it was self-animated, but in reality, there was like someone inside it or mm-hmm. some sort of strings being pulled or something. Do I have that right? 
Absolutely, yeah. Like a lot of times in the uh, medieval Arabic world, they'd, or then in the Persian world too, it'd be more like mechanisms. You'd kind of push a button or pull a wheel or something, and you'd have kind of like this. Uh, a lot of times they'd have these bleeding. Uh, well, they called them bleeding statues, but they were just statues that just had water inside them. Sure. Kind of like an apparatus. But yeah, a lot of times there was kind of an extra step to them. Yeah. But yeah, I'm looking at their place within medieval literature too. A lot of times they're kind of beyond the peripheries of what is considered natural and supernatural. So they're really kind of interesting in terms of liminal spaces. The uh, A lot of times these automata are kind of too dangerous to exist, but they also anticipate modern concerns with technology because i think even now uh, a lot of people are afraid of kind of being replaced or not sure where right. technology fits in within their lives too so i'm i'm really interested in those kind of questions and uh, correct me if i'm wrong sometimes people thought that they were animated by like a demon or something like that absolutely yeah so there's a lot of fears that these uh-huh. these these technologies, what kind of inhabits the soul of this creation? You know, is it demonic? Uh, is it uh, something preternatural? So there's that's kind of an ongoing debate. My previous sure. research looked at medieval alchemy too. So there's a lot of interesting crossovers there, just ah. in terms of yeah, you know, like the le- legitimacy of alchemy. Should we practice it, or is it kind of demonic by nature? Uh-huh. You know, are we are we kind of transcending God's uh, ways by you know practicing you know. Uh, creating these homunculies. So, um, well, let me ask things. you this: like, so sort of ease into Game of Thrones here. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if you would see a parallel here with what Kyburn is doing with the mountain. Um, so, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's some kind of alchemical practice because he is considered a practicing alchemist. Too, and the maesters always practice these uh, kind of. Uh, well, in Kyburn's case, it's kind of these sketchy experiments. So there's, there's a little bit of kind of necro... Well, yeah, because we don't really see him die, right? So we don't know if it's really necromancy or whether it's this kind of alchemical experiments. Mm. Alchemy is a little bit twisted in Game of Thrones because it's almost more like pyromancy, too. They say, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. they don't even pretend to transmute the metals, but they have this amazing kind of capabilities with making this wildfire. Um, although, to what extent, you know, it fits the kind of medieval or classical definition of alchemy is kind of up for debate. I guess you could say Kyburn's kind of like a jack of all trades in some ways with all of his esoteric knowledge and, and interest in the occult. Yeah, that's right. And certainly the suspicious of him would sort of have a parallel with the suspicions that surrounded these people that were working in, I don't know, either preternatural or demonic mm-hmm. or supernatural or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, today, uh, Curtis, we're looking at uh, Catelyn's eighth POV chapter. Mm-hmm. So famously, this is the chapter where Bronn stands in for Tyrion mm. uh, in a trial by combat. It feels, in some ways, you know, when they do have that kind of battle too, it just it feels so unfair when you watch it, you know, because here we have this valiant kind of glamorous knight, and we have this kind of asshole sellsword Bronn, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then he kind of just does all the dirty tricks in the book too. So I mean, you know, on a metaphorical level, like chivalry is literally dead. We have this kind of fanciful display of chivalry, but it's to his disadvantage too. He yeah. has this beautiful shining armor, and then you know it weighs him down, and then Bronn just kind of knows how to manipulate that and wins the battle, and it's it's great because we all love Tyrion, but I. I mean, it sucks for the, <laughs> the uh, and that's also, I think, George R. R. Martin's kind of stab at chivalry, too. So he's always kind of taking stabs at, at chivalry, at the kind of performativity of it. Um, so yeah, yeah we, of- we really see sort of a contrast between someone like, he's not just a trained knight, he's a man of court, you know, he's... Absolutely, yeah. He, he's, he's high society, he's He's, he's very respectable, yeah. He's very respectable. So he's, a, yeah, so it's a contrast between a respectable knight and just a... A lowborn killer. He's a. He's just a. That's what Braun is. He's just a killer. Um, mm. and and of course, in Martin's world, the killer is going to win, right? Absolutely. And uh, you know, you come to the area and you think it's going to be like this kind of you know great little lord, but he's very sickly and kind of insufferable, isn't he? Robert, the, the little boy, too. So I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. In a way, I was kind of glad. I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> I don't don't give him everything he wants. You know, I absolutely so. want to get into that. Let me read my synopsis of the chapter. Cat mm-hmm. looks upon a waterfall named Alyssa's Tears and admires the beauty of the dawn, but she has a bad feeling about what the day will bring. Roderick has brought her news that pretends to war, and she cannot trust her sister to deal wisely with the imp. This is confirmed by the Blackfish, who complains that Lysa has refused him a thousand swords to go defend Riverrun. Cat invites her uncle to Winterfell and promises him the men he needs. Cat tries to talk her sister out of the scheduled trial by combat, to no avail. 
After a few ceremonial gestures in the garden, the fighters are in place, Servardus Egan representing Lysa and Bronn the Freerider, who represents Tyrion. Bronn dodges and dances around Vardis to tire the older man, then Bronn wounds the knight at his elbow joint. Once the knight is reduced, Bronn pushes a large garden statue onto his opponent and traps him before killing him. Lysa reluctantly allows Tyrion to leave by way of the high road rather than the moon door. So, Curtis Runstetler, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? I'm feeling the ladder of chaos. <laughs> All right, so chaos it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go first. Um, yeah, so I think oh, there's, there's so much to talk about with this chapter, which is great. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the chivalry already. Um, I want to talk about Liza Aaron, actually, because I think she's such a fascinating character and she really represents this, the insanity of, of, I think it's very much a, a reaction to the kind of world that she's into. You know, she's been married to this, John Aaron was great as the hen, but he wasn't, he was a terrible husband, you know, and she's had to live with this for years. You know, she's always been kind of subordinated and put in second place. And you really see that kind of insanity come more and more to the fore too. We know what, uh, you know, she's actually been up to with Littlefinger too, which yeah. started the whole books. And for all of, John Aaron's kind of uh, he's he's such a significant character, but we really don't get we don't really get to know him in the books, which is interesting because it starts just as he's died. So I mean, it would have been kind of interesting to have him in the books too. Yeah, I'm, interesting that you say that she's in, insane. I had a, another guest who said she's kind of portrayed that way in the show, but in the book, mm. he, is she insane or is she conniving? You know, she sort of plot mm. is she plotting and scheming? Maybe she's not as insane. But and That's the other the thing point, that you yeah. said was that John Arryn wasn't a great husband, and I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about those two things. I think it might be because it become might be com- from coming from what she has kind of said about it too. Because uh, you know, by all other accounts, I think he was a good husband. But I mean, the way that he's described, she said, you know, his breath smelled really bad, and he was very old, and and uh, I think she was quite uh, a young woman when she was married to him. I think. And probably, yeah, it, probably it, a it loveless kinda, marriage, right? It, it kind of reminded me that the fisherman's tale, the or the shipman's tale, the the Chaucer tale, where the, the kind of really old man has this very young wife too, and they just there's kind of incongruous together, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I want to read yeah. this one little passage about Lysa. This is sort of um, mm. this is Cat's impression of her sister. Yes, the shy girl she had known at River Run had grown into a woman who is by turns proud, fearful, cruel, dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain, and above all, inconstant. So, I mean, I guess if she's sort of vacillating in between all of these different aspects, I guess that that could sort of display as insane. Mm. But but Kat's idea of her, I mean, proud, fearful, cruel, dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain, and above all, inconstant. The word insane is not used, and yet maybe mm-hmm. when you put all those together, that's kind of how it yeah. strikes you. I don't well, know. I think what, do you what, think? It, what is clear is there's a transformation. So maybe I'm reading into it too much by saying insanity. But I mean, we are seeing it from Kat's point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think what is clear is there's a transformation in her character. She's not the girl yeah. that she knew in River Run, and she's been very, very different. So whether it's in, on account of just being alone for so long or just being yeah. feeling neglected or or whatever the case may be, I mean, she has kind of changed. And as we see, it's not necessarily for better. It's, you know, probably like, for maybe worse. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe not insane. Maybe like, I mean, you could just say crazy. She's crazy. I mean, yeah. that, even if it's yeah. not sort of a technical yeah. term, that that's mm. how she will present. The other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit was Robert Arn. Yes. And I might just call him Robin. And, and he's he, in the Robin, chapter, yeah. he's called Robert, but it, you know, too many Robins, <laughs> right? So yeah. if I call him sweet Robin, Ro- that's sweet, why. Sweet Robin, yeah. Yeah, sweet Robin. <laughs> I felt like reading this chapter, I felt like this whole thing is a rehearsal for Joffrey. Mm. You know, you have this immature, bloodthirsty asshole of a kid who's who just <laughs> <Make the> men fly <laughs> yeah he wants he wants the, the men to fight he wants to make the man fly he's totally he's he's very, he's very detached from the meaning of human life he just has no his callous disregard for human life you know yeah, he's been spoiled he really ha- yeah you're right he's out of touch with what we might call empathy and you can kind of see how things can run amok really quickly with someone like that who's sort of the Lord of the Vale. 
Hmm. And then, of course, this is lower stakes, but we're going to find out eventually how this will work for the entire kingdom when the king is, has all of these qualities. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of sad to think about John Aaron because he gave so much to the realm. And then, you know, if, when you think about his legacy, he has this Liza Aaron and then this, this awful sweet Robin, you know? <laughs> After everything John Aaron did, I mean, just, there's just not much to show for it, is there? Mm-hmm. You know? I was thinking that the uh, the other thing that struck me about this particular chapter was that when the trial by combat is all ramping up, Kat's mind is cast back to this previous combat between mm. Brandon and Peter Baelish. Peter Baelish at that point being little more than a boy. Mm. And it almost makes me think, so there's sort of a combat within a combat in this chapter. And it almost made me think these things are related because mm. I think that, Maybe Baelish's origin story is that combat. You know, he makes mm. a play to, for the woman he loves, mm. is rejected and humiliated, yeah, and maimed, and then he holds on to that. Yeah. I think also it's interesting in terms of the wounds because we have this obviously very graphic physical wound. You know, he almost kills yeah. him with the final blow, um, but he also seems to internalize these wounds too. You know, like we don't know to what extent, but I think he has kind of metaphorical and physical wounds, and also kind of the wounds of being on this lower social class, being an inadequate for marriage to Catelyn and that sort of thing as well. Right, and those internal wounds are motivators for him i mean he Mm -hmm. has set this whole thing in motion this this relationship with lysa the the letter to cat that bring ultimately brings ned south the attempted murder on bran all of that stuff is flowing from this origin story with peter baelish where he's he's trying to sow chaos in the kingdom because of the chaos within him maybe absolutely yeah so I thought it was a fascinating way to couch that origin story between Brandon and Peter Baelish. And I was thinking about his sigil, too, with the Mockingbird there, too. I mean, he's kind of like in his position of power. He's kind of mocking all those who kind of fucked him over. Yes, um, so, that's right. Yeah. And so, right. And if you think about this, the story between, you know, the the young upstart Baelish, who's no match for the, the hulking Brandon Stark... Um, mm. But, of course, Baelish loses that battle, but he's going to go try to win the war. Eventually, Brandon dies, and mm. Peter Baelish survives, and he survives long enough to ruin the entire kingdom. Yeah, because he's like a king among the ashes kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm curious, Curtis, you know, you're a studied medievalist, and I'm wondering... What are you noticing about this particular chapter that those of us who are not studied medievalists maybe didn't see? Absolutely. Um, So, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting at the beginning with that scene with Eliza's tears, because it almost reminds me of the uh, Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, the Obad. So we have this beautiful sunrise and we have this beautiful dawn sequence Mm. where Catelyn's kind of watching the the dawn break over the Eyrie. And I thought what was interesting here is that usually the Obad kind of signifies something, you know, two lovers waking up in the morning together or something kind of beautiful happening. But here it's a bit ironic, too, because we have this beautiful sunrise and then we have this kind of very naughty... uh, kind of uh, trial by combat. Again, it's uh, Martin, I think, kind of uh, satirizing, I guess, the uh, Abad tradition in the medieval world a little bit too. You know, it's not this romantic uh, happening, but it's actually this kind of unromantic uh, kind of reality. Yeah. What's intriguing, I think, is that, you know, there is kind of a sense of honor and tradition here. It's kind of a little bit controversial, I think, that a sellsword fights this kind of really powerful knight too, but I think this is kind of a exceptional uh, situation. Sure. Um, and in reality, we know as readers that the reason why Braun wins is because Sir Vardis Egan has everything going against him. Mm. Um, I, I think what's interesting, too, too, in terms of like his loss, like Vardis's loss is, is also, you know, like it just shows how impractical the armor is. Because a lot of times we see these kind of, you know, Ivanhoe, for instance, too, we have that kind of Victorian image of the medieval. But, you know, when we actually have that suit of armor on it, I mean, it's really heavy. Maybe if the the guy had worn less armor or just (laughs) not been as honorable as a fighter, you know, the honor that kind of gets you killed. Um, We see that, too, in the uh, when they have the feast for Robert and they have that little uh, tournament. And, uh, you know, 
kind of things go wild and then the, the mountain kind of kills his horse too like it's literally like a death of chivalry the, the cheval from the french um but yeah that's something to kind of keep in mind too. so i made a chart all right i i, yeah. I there's nothing more nerdy than making a chart and then getting Chats excited <laughs> about getting someone else to listen to your chart but anyway here's oh, yeah. my chart yeah uh, so so it's the contrast between vardis and brawn okay so mm-hmm. Vardis is sort of gleaming head to toe, and Braun is unshaven. You get the sense that, like, here's Vardis. He's polished. He's polished for the occasion, <laughs> and Braun didn't even take the time to shave. Yeah, he's all he's all dolled up. <laughs> um, Vardis has a shield. Braun has no shield. Uh, the swords. Uh, so Catelyn says the sword functions as Braun's own arm. The sword is so a part of Braun. It's like his own arm. Whereas with Vardis. It's not even his own sword. It's this decorative silver sword that <laughs> Lysa had created for her husband, and she thinks it'll be like symbolic. This is not. Yeah, the, the non-existent goats are going to come out of nowhere yeah. and save his ass. <laughs> right. So then, finally, Vardis needs his squire to help him stand after he kneels for the Septon, because mm. of, he's older and his armor is is like head to toe. It's it's probably weighing him down. And then, of course, it says that Braun moves like a panther, and he's quick as a cat. So you're right. All of this sort of tradition that's viewed as chivalrous and honorable is really weighing Vardis down. And, of course, Braun knows how to take advantage of this. Absolutely. So Braun is almost like an animal in this. In this, uh, you know, he's described as a as a panther and a cat, but mm. he really is sort of this almost subhuman Mm. creature that Tyrion decides that he can use to his benefit. Absolutely. He's very good at surviving. And it's interesting how for part of it, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a symbiosis, how like his relationship with Tyrion is always kind of fascinating. You know, they're just kind of using each other. It's not really a friendship. It's it's just, you know, playing the Game of Thrones, I guess. We should also note this myth of Elisa and her tears at the beginning and there's this big statue of Elisa in the garden. Braun uses the mythology mm. against the people of the Vale. You know, he takes this big statue and pushes it over and crushes <laughs> Vardis Egan. So just sort of symbolically, Braun has decided to use the, the, the mythology that makes the Vale, you know, grand mm. and use it against them. You know, to kind yeah, of literally, yeah, <laughs> really put just push over. It reminds you a little bit of like first century cynics who would like def- defile statues or whatever just to kind of show how empty the tradition is. Yeah, absolutely. They have like a, a practical value, but then they shatter as soon as they hit the ground, so it doesn't really serve much purpose otherwise. You know. So eventually, what ends up happening is because Bronn wins, Lysa sends Tyrion along the high road. And Kat realizes, like, oh, she's – this is actually a shrewd move because even though Tyrion seems to have gone free, leaving by the high road without an army is really kind of a perilous – it's almost a death sentence in itself. Um, mm-hmm. So even though Tyrion doesn't leave by way of the moon door, leaving by way of the high road is a different kind of death. And so Absolutely. I think that Lysa thinks that she's sort of – she wins either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some notable introductions in this chapter. Eon Hunter is mentioned. Sir Lynn is mentioned. And then, of course, this uh, this myth and statue of Elisa. Uh, so notable differences. The Blackfish is not at all in this episode in the show. And you see that he's keenly interested in River Run. You know, he's like, look, I may be a Blackfish, but I'm still a Tully and I'm going to go defend River Run, even if my niece won't give me a thousand swords that I need. So you have that whole plot that's not in the show. Mm. Also different in the book is that, you know, they don't do the trial by combat in the, you know, the actual throne room. You don't fight with honor. No. He did. Which, of course, you would never do. You would never do that yeah. in the throne room, right? No, absolutely not. That'd be, that'd be, yeah, so, <laughs> so they move it to you know they move it outside, of course, but it's sort of uneven ground, and and then of course uh, you don't have the statue crushing 
Vardis Egan in the show. And then I normally just do introductions and book differences, but I, I think I'm going to introduce a new feature this week, and that is Notable Departures. Mm. You know, so we have the departure of Vardis Egan. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline who we've been introduced, you know, just briefly in a a few chapters earlier. But he does a lot, this guy, to introduce us to Braun, right? Because the more we learn about the contrast between Egan and Braun, it's almost like Egan serves his purpose to introduce Braun, and then Braun, of course, emerges victorious. And we have a sense of him now as a character. He's sort of like a a bizarro Vardis Egan. (laughs) And now Steve and I cover Season 5, Episode 1, The Wars to Come. Cersei has a flashback to her childhood prophecy, Tywin is buried. Danny is trying to deal with her imprisoned dragons. And we have a budding interest between Missandei and Grey Worm. Finally, I ought to mention that Steve is back on stage after long last. So if you're interested in seeing Steve perform and you're in the North Bay, you can check out OzFest at a U-S-F-E-S-T on Instagram. He usually posts about his gigs there. Without further ado, here's comic Steve Osborne. Steve, you've watched 41 episodes of Game of Thrones now. Did you know that? Is that right? Yeah, you have. So, you know a lot about... I mean, there's still parts of the world that are not built yet, but for the most part, the canvas has been stretched. Okay. All right, so Steve, uh, we are going to implement Prima Nocta. <laughs> uh, that never really works out well. You think it will? Yeah, it's not a good idea. <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> I know. I'm. I live in Ohio. We tried it for a little bit here. All right. There's still some suburbs that that practice it. John Kasich gave it a go for a couple of years. It's mostly just. It's mostly just part of the HOAs. <laughs> All right, so we are instituting the Season 5 rule for this podcast. Uh, Yeah. And the Season 5 rule is that uh, we're going to pick one thing that titillated us about the episode. And one thing that didn't work for us. And, you know, we might keep this around for a while, but at least for Season 5, instead of just picking these episodes apart, we're just going to pick one of each. So uh, we're going to ask you to go first. What's one thing about this episode that didn't work for you? Well, this is a this is a hard one because on one hand, the easy answer is like we're just getting an awful lot of Lord Baelish. Yeah, it's true, and it's uh, that's funny. That's the thing that worked for me this episode. Right, so funny. It's just it's just it's hard because it's like I mean I I do appreciate the uh, sort of the insertion of him as like a little bit more of the baddie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I'm looking at as something that like. Just didn't work. There, I, overall, the the tone feels different. Season five, the tone it just it at least coming out the gate, uh, and maybe yeah. maybe it's because yeah. Of where what we is were. it? Was it pacing, or what was it? It's hard to say, but it just, it just felt different. It felt like I hate to say it, but it kind of felt like a show more than it has yeah. in in previous seasons. Rather than like a, a full feature film that right. happens to be episodic, yeah. Right? Somehow it felt way more. It was almost like they did a, a special made for TV, like you know, when like Saved by the Bell goes to Hawaii or something. <laughs> right. 
Okay, well, that's so. So your the overall tone was yeah uh, um, f- felt a little different. Yeah, I mean, overall, as like, and that's I guess what it is. I can't really put my finger on any one thing. I mean, there's things that um, uh-huh. I'm still like I'm interested about the the marine thing. I guess I'm, I'm you know I, the Danny meter, like we talk about the Brianna meter. The Danny meter is always sort of it, it's always moving with me. It's never super steady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm just not sure where where I stand on this. Uh, I mean, I think that's an. I, I I like the concept. I like the idea that uh, she's struggling with leadership as opposed to just conquering and setting people free. And there's like all that. I I, I like that, but there's something about the presentation that doesn't quite. I, I'm never as uh, into those scenes as mm-hmm. I feel like I should be compared to the other ones. Mm-hmm. Something didn't work for me was. I kind of like the Tyrion who I met in these first four seasons. And I'm not sure that depressed Tyrion is titillating me. And I realize that, you you know, you these characters can't stay one dimensional. They have to be moving. I like to see a natural consequence to what it would be like to kill your own father. That's interesting to me. Um. But yeah, <laughs> like it's really interesting to me. <laughs> like I could watch a whole show <laughs> devoted when it's like after you kill your father. Anyway, I don't know. I kind of I'm a little bit I'm already a little bit tired of the nihilist Tyrion. Really? He's, he's we, t- we just we just we, that's quick. Yeah, yeah, it really is. See, and I think that I go maybe the other direction. I mean, I think from just a, a consumption standpoint, I I want my old Tyrion back. But from a long-term view, the idea that he just, he's endured so much, and now he's just finally just sort of he's at this broken. breaking point. And what do you yeah. do, right? And it's like, it's not like, I mean, it's not like Jamie with one hand. Because Jamie can still cruise around and be Jamie, right? Like people may murmur, like I only got one hand. He's not as dangerous as he was, but he still looks like Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I, maybe that's a good analogy here because I feel like when Jamie lost a hand, I thought, "Oh shit!" Like what's going to happen to him now? And I kind of fascinated because I'd like to see his character on a different arc, but with Tyrion, I kind of felt like I don't know if I'm willing to give up the old Tyrion yet. It's almost like his character was killed off, but we still have to see his corpse dragged around. Yes, it's, this is a weekend at Bernie's Tyrion. Um, all right. Something that worked for you in this episode. Something that titillated. I, uh, I'm i titillated by the uh, the Stannis-John Snow dynamic. Ooh, okay. And it's interesting because the wall usually is sort of also one of those ones that I'm like, I can take it or leave it. But... Um, I've become much more interested in Jon Snow. And I think a lot of John, me being interested in Jon Snow is when they introduced uh, Egret to the situation. I think she hmm. helped flesh that character out a little bit. And, I, right. think, and I, I think that this has been a slow burn character arc that surprisingly has hooked into me. And it might be because, you know, we saw this very brief glimpse of this, uh, of like behind the curtain of the, uh, of the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. And so there's this other element out there. And so the wall, I think, already has this, has me a little bit, which is surprising because it's, it's magic infused. You know what? This is fascinating because I think you're right about John. And I think in order for him to get to where he is now, he had to kind of go through this hellish ex- experience where now he, he's just holding his life kind of lightly. Right. Right. He's kind of like, I don't even care. I don't even care what happens to me. Uh, I'm going to do what I think is right. I think this whole thing is probably, uh, there's probably a lot of bullshit baked into this whole institution. Whereas Tyrion is kind of at that stage. And for some reason, it makes Jon more interesting and makes Tyrion a little less interesting to me. But maybe, well, to your point, maybe maybe I should be looking at Tyrion differently. And I think that that's why I'm hanging on to the Tyrion thing is because I've seen sort of a, a reciprocal relationship. I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. John go from the bastard to maybe on his way to gets the name. But like we're seeing maybe John on that kind of arc, whereas Tyrion's become a bastard. Mm-hmm. And now that's like, what's he going to do with it? Is he going to rise out of it or is he going to just drink himself to death in a in a box? I'll tell you something. 
I'm beginning to really like the Littlefinger Sansa duo. Okay. And I, and I'll tell you why. I think okay, number 1, Sansa hated Joffrey for killing her father, right? She was never going to forgive him for killing her father, right? Mhm. Well, now she's allied with the guy who killed her father. Yeah. That's true. I mean, Baelish was behind this whole thing. Yeah. And now she's allied with the guy that did that. So that's fascinating to me. But more than that, I feel like I feel like Sansa's finally taking an interest in politics. And not just like politics, but like figuring out how to manipulate people, figuring out how to effectively lie, figuring out. And I what I think is what's happening is she's finally taking control of her own situation. Right. Before she kind of took control of things that it was merely for survival and it was kind of a haphazard would get her into like every time she would try to play the game the way she was mm-hmm. kind of thought, well, this is how you do it. It would get a little worse and then it would get a little worse and it would get a little worse. And now it's like, arguably it's just as bad or, you know, as it was, but she's like, okay, I can keep doing this, but to what end? I yeah, either, I'm either yeah. going to chase, I'm either be being chased by inevitable death or I can meet it head on and see if I can conquer. So in the same way that the hound kind of taught Arya about, killing people, right? I think that Baelish is teaching Sansa how to manipulate people. And these are both like really horrible, you know, murderous, evil mentors that they've taken. But it's almost like these guys are a means to survival for, for a particular, you know, time of their life. So I, I find that interesting. I, I like that. I like that a lot. You like the dynamic enough to listen to Littlefinger talk. Yeah, I will wow, allow it. That says a I lot. Allow says it. a lot about that dynamic. I also like to watch Robin Oren try to spar. I yeah, just thought that was, that, was that was I could watch that all day long. Yeah, because we haven't had a slappable <laughs> young <laughs> young person in a while, so it's kind of nice. Just to watch his little limp arm try to like barely hold up that wooden sword. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Steve, Loris has a tattoo that looks like a geographical region. Yes, it does. Steve, do you have a tattoo that looks like a geographical region? I don't. Uh, I have I have a birthmark that looks like uh, a smudge. <laughs> well, you're, you know what? I should have said birthmark. Loris has a birthmark that gotcha. looks like Dorn, right? Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is reward unto itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. Mission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. 
The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at bald move just join the club but some people aren't a joining type or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage or for podcasts that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time for these and for whatever other reason you might have our tip jar is always open head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say hey keep doing what you're doing we appreciate it Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. So you have a birthmark that looks like a smudge. Yeah, it's not like no one. I mean, if you were checking it out to see what it I mean, I guess it could be probably looks like a district in Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay. so you've got a birthmark that looks a little bit like Wisconsin. A district. Okay. It's been gerrymandered. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to let's move on to <laughs> We're gonna close on gerrymandering. <laughs> For this week's bird's eye view, I want to keep with the theme of trial by combat. I was reading an essay by Peter Leeson on the Yale website. And he cites Russell in his 1983 publication, page 126. And here I quote the instructions for the plot of land to be used for a trial by battle. It must be an even and level piece of ground set square, 60 feet on each side, due east, west, north, and south. And a place or seat for the justices of the bench was made without and above the lists and covered with the furniture of the same bench in Westminster Hall and a bar made there for the sergeant at law. I thought that was an interesting detail because the instructions for a trial by battle denote that it is an even plot of land. And I thought that was an interesting detail because, of course, Vardis and Braun fight on an uneven plot of land. And I thought maybe Martin is playing with a metaphor about how uneven this battle actually is. Or maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into this. Again, such is the trouble with deep dives. Sometimes you see the things that you want to see, but at the same time, I would not put it past George Martin to further subvert the ideal. Finally, I found this paper by Pete Leeson fascinating, so I decided to interview him. That will be coming out shortly as a bonus episode, where Pete and I talk at length about trial by battle. Look for that as a bonus Boogaloo podcast in the near future. And that is all for this week.